This is a Federal News Network podcast. The vast majority of the Social Security Administration workforce has been teleworking for nearly 14 months. SSA field and local offices are either closed to the public or by appointment only, with managers handling mass volumes of mail and requests for in-person services. But managers and members of Congress say the current model is unsustainable, and they say SSA has an opportunity to reimagine the way it delivers service whenever the pandemic ends. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Congress is looking for more answers from the Social Security Administration, and some senators are growing frustrated with the workarounds the agency has put in place to try to keep employees and members of the public safe during the pandemic. They say members of the public are struggling to access SSA while field offices are mostly closed, and it's especially concerning for those in vulnerable populations who don't have a sound internet connection or a reliable phone number or mailing address. Senator Ron Wyden is the chairman of the Finance Committee. The employees at Social Security have worked hard to get payments out on time while undergoing big changes to the way the agency operates. Despite that, the reality is social distancing and social security go together like water and oil. SSA managers are working in the field and local offices during the pandemic, and some employees joined them last fall. About 3,000 SSA managers and employees are working in person today. Those who are there are handling dire need appointments with members of the public and are scanning 1.5 million pieces of mail a week and other documents into the agency's systems. That allows the rest of the SSA workforce to continue working from home. But it hurts productivity and creates bottlenecks in other SSA workloads. Peggy Murphy is the district manager of the Great Falls, Montana Social Security Office. This current model is not sustainable because it leaves managers with very little time to perform their duties, which includes facility and personnel responsibilities. Most of our employees remain at home while managers are in the office. Each office is managing their own unique service area challenges the best they possibly can, and some face additional obstacles depending on size, location, demographics, and available resources. We have realized advantages of telework, and so have our employees. However, we need to reopen our offices with the right mix of office workers and teleworkers to ensure customers are getting the service they need, and in some cases that is definitely face-to-face. SSA says it took field offices about 20% longer to complete most tasks last year compared to previous years, again because of the workarounds. The agency is still following January guidance from the Office of Management and Budget, and that limited the number of employees agencies could have working in person. Grace Kim is the Deputy Commissioner for Operations at SSA. We are bargaining currently over the workplace safety plan, which right now limits our ability to bring employees in beyond 25% under the workplace safety plan. We are still utilizing maximum telework. So at the point where we where we get further White House guidance and our ability to reopen, and we are at a point where we can revisit instituting a telework program, at that point, we will be engaging with the union in good faith negotiations about that. But both Republicans and Democrats say the current policy isn't really working. Virginia Senator Mark Warner. And I know you've got this OMB rule that says you can't put more than 25 percent of your personnel back in the office at this point, but I don't still understand why that would 
preclude at least some level of in-person appointments. And again, I know this has been a, a hard, hard time for, for you and your workforce, but I am getting inundated with constituents who've got really you know, heartbreaking stories. Kim says she'll incrementally start bringing back more employees to work in person at the field offices, as long as she can stay within the limits of the workplace safety plan. SSA employee unions say they've been productive throughout the pandemic because they've been able to telework. They acknowledge, though, not all SSA work is portable. Here's Murphy. She's also the immediate past president at the National Council of Social Security Management Associations. We were very, very nimble in being able to go to telework more than we actually expected. My employees, particularly in Great Falls, Montana, Haver, and Glasgow, were not excited to be teleworkers. Now they love it. So we've got to balance that as well. The work that makes sense to do teleworking, great. The work that makes sense to do in the office, we want our employees back in the office as well. Kim says there's a place for telework at SSA once the pandemic is over, but she didn't explain or preview exactly what that might look like. We've learned many lessons during this pandemic, particularly what is truly portable work that could be performed at a a location away from the, the office as if the person is in the office themselves. And so I think we have opportunities as we've identified those workloads that are truly portable to think about hiring future staff who may not ever set foot in a SSA facility. SSA says the pandemic has changed just about everything about the way it does its work. And it acknowledges it'll need to change the way it offers services to the public once the pandemic is over. Murphy says SSA needs to focus on providing options. I've got some folks who say, yes, I want to sit down and have a face-to-face. I have others that are very happy and say, oh, I don't have to come in. Great. I'm happy to do this over the phone. So I think the key in Montana and every other state is that we have options for customers. And that is face-to-face service. That is on the phone. That is online. But it'll take resources for SSA to truly modernize. SSA Commissioner Andrew Saul says the agency is performing poorly in some cases because it didn't get the funding it needed in 2021. And he's making an active push for an extra $1.3 billion in funding for 2022. Saul says without the extra funding now, he's delaying planned hiring and will cut back on overtime. He also warned wait times for SSA's 800 number could grow too. If and when SSA does get more resources, it needs to target a lot of it toward IT modernization. Here's Kim. Instead, you know, the pandemic highlighted the number of workarounds and stops and starts that we have because of the use of our legacy systems. I don't have an end date yet for when all legacy systems will be eliminated, but we are making headway every day on our IT modernization plan. And I am very, very excited for the opportunity that modernizing our systems will bring operations and all frontline employees. Nicola Grisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas 
and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance 
uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet 
and said, you know, I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.